18 June 1944, in the midst of World War II, Martin Lloyd-Jones was 44 years old. He was the pastor of the Westminster Chapel in London. Germany had been bombing London for months when suddenly all the members in the church on a Sunday morning hear the familiar sound of a whistle. The sound that a bomb was falling near to them. And the whistle was so loud that they knew the bomb was very near to them. Can you please hand out these handouts, please? The church members could tell it was Sunday morning during the service, and they could tell that the bomb was very near to them. But their pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was praying. He was praying his 10-minute long Sunday morning pulpit prayer. And as the whistle got louder and louder, Martin Lloyd-Jones did not stop praying. Until the bomb hit the church, at which point he paused and an eyewitness said, everyone looked at him and he never opened his eyes. He only paused as the building shook and plaster fell on his head. And then without opening his eyes, he continued to pray and finished his pastoral prayer. That story signifies a heart that we need to learn from. He was mastered by an overwhelming fear of God. After I read the, the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is the one volume that I read. There's a, one that's 800 pages longer than this. It's two volumes that Paul's read. I've read this 400-page biography, and it is fantastic. Just after I read this, Paul and I were talking on the phone and he asked me, Seth, what do you think is the greatest problem in the American church? And because I had read that book, my reply was the lack of the fear of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a man who was full of God. When J.I. Packer, J.I. Packer is a great author, man has written many, many books, J.I. Packer heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach and said, quote, I have never heard another preacher with so much of God about him. The thrust of his sermons is always to show that man is small and God is great. And so I'd like to review for you the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones and choose one heading, and that is that revival most commonly comes among those people and to those churches who are God-centered like Martin Lloyd-Jones. Let's look at his life. He's born 11 days before 1900, 10 days before Friedrich Nietzsche dies, 1899, 20th of December. In 1910, he's 10 years old, and the Lloyd-Jones have their entire home burned to the ground. The family barely escapes, and they have to throw 10-year-old Martin out the second-story window and catch him below. 13 years old, Martin decides to become a doctor. At 14 years old, his family's business declares bankruptcy and that forces them to move to London. And because they're in London, he's able to attend the medical school in London. At 16 years old, he's accepted as an intern at the prestigious St. Bartholomew's Hospital. 
And at 21 years old, he begins working for Sir Thomas Horder, assistant, a doctor to the royal family. He's now assistant to the king, uh, to the queen, and the husband of the queen, which is very hard for me to say without saying the word king, and the royal children. 1923, he receives his his medical doctorate degree for his research. His research was later published. 24 years old, Martin Lloyd-Jones is converted. 24, notice that. 1924. And by the way, the years go with his age since he's born December 20th. Whenever you see the age, it's basically, unless this is talking about December 23rd of that year, that's how old he is. So in 1924, he is, of course, 24 years old when he's converted. 1925, he gives his life to be a preacher. And then he becomes a pastor in 1926. He's still a single man at 26 years old, and he's a pastor in Wales. And when he becomes a pastor, he has to leave his medical career. And he had a promising medical career. As I said, he was already connected to the royal family. So his prospects were great. And when he decided to become a pastor, it was front page news in the newspapers in London. 27 years old, January 8th. Martin marries Bethann Phillips, and he receives as a wedding gift books from John Owen and Richard Baxter. Books by them. They weren't still alive. They weren't still alive on earth. They were very much alive in heaven. And this begins 1927. He's been a pastor for about 12 months, and he has these books by Baxter and Owen, and he begins to meet the Puritans. At 27 years old, he becomes excited by these men who don't preach like the other men he's heard. They're alive and full of life and power. 1929, he's 29 years old and he discovers the writings of Jonathan Edwards in a secondhand bookstore. As he's waiting for a train, he would later say, those books helped me more than anything else. Lloyd-Jones eventually came to say that Jonathan Edwards was the greatest theological mind of all time. So now, who are the men who are influencing him? John Owen, Richard Richard Baxter, Jonathan Edwards. These great minds that we've heard about in the theology class. And then he turns to George Whitfield. He reads the two-volume biography of George Whitfield by Luke Tierman. And when he reads that biography, he says... When I read Whitfield, I felt that I have never preached in my life. Now, this is the man that I'm about to say to you is my model for preaching more so than Charles Spurgeon. I'm about to say that this man is my model for preaching more than John Bunyan and William Carey, who are the three men on my wall. This man was not a Baptist, and he's my model for preaching. If I could preach like this man, I would feel like I have, I have grown And God has answered my prayers. And this man says, when I read the biographies of George Whitfield, I actually felt like I had never preached in my life. This is a man who's humble, who's putting his roots deep into Puritan theology. You will go far if the four men who influence your life are John Owen, Richard Baxter, Jonathan Edwards, and George Whitfield. You take those four and God will do great things. And this man takes those four, and we're going to see he takes many more. 1931, 
He's preaching. And a man named Harry Wood. He had in the past been a drunkard in the little town in Wales where Lloyd-Jones was preaching. And while Lloyd-Jones is preaching, this Harry Wood decides to come to the church. He comes to the church and he hears Lloyd-Jones preach. He's converted. He leaves his alcohol. And then he comes to the church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night for the prayer meeting. Harry Wood, as he's coming, is an old man in his 80s. And he would often say when he comes to the prayer meetings, I would be glad if I died at a prayer meeting. I feel so close to God praying with all you Christians. And sure enough, that year in 1931, after one of the men read a chapter from the Bible, they turned and said they would have no preaching on Wednesday nights. They would have someone read a chapter from the Bible. And then they would say, all right, let's begin in prayer. And one after another, people would pray. And Harry Wood began praying that night and said the word heaven. And then everyone heard a thud as he fell over and died with a smile on his face. 1932, he discovers the writings of B.B. Warfield. This is uh, Lloyd-Jones, discovers B.B. Warfield. 1935, he's asked to preach on the radio. Then later he preaches to an audience of 7,000 in Wales. And then in 1935, he's 35 years old. He's been a pastor for about nine years. And G. Campbell Morgan hears him preach. G. Campbell Morgan was an expositor, a man who would preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And G. Campbell Morgan was the pastor of the church named the Westminster Chapel. It wasn't allowed to be called a church because it wasn't Anglican. It was a Protestant church. And it was a dissenting church. That was a church that disagreed with the Anglicans. So it was not allowed to have the name church in it. So they called it Westminster Chapel. G. Campbell Morgan was famous there as a verse-by-verse preacher. And Morgan hears this young Welsh preacher speaking and says, This is a great man. This man has has real promise. And so Lloyd-Jones is asked to preach at Spurgeon's tabernacle. In fact, he's asked to be the pastor there, even though he's not a Baptist. This is 40 years after Spurgeon had died. But then Lloyd-Jones accepts G. Campbell Morgan's proposal to come and preach for six months at Westminster Chapel. And in 39 years old, I'm sorry, I guess it'll be 38 because he hasn't turned 39 until the end. At 38 years old, on the 23rd of April, Martin Lloyd-Jones accepts the call to Westminster Chapel to share the pulpit with G. Campbell Morgan, who is now an old man, and he leaves his church in Aberavon. Now, at that first place, he had seen revival. He had seen God save people in amazing ways, and he now leaves that church, and he goes to Westminster Chapel. September 3rd. World War II begins the day before he becomes the pastor at the tabernacle, at the chapel. His first book of sermons is published that year, entitled, Why Does God Allow War? Listen to this. Eventually, Martin Lloyd-Jones will publish 95 books. He did not write one of them. Every single book published was his sermons that people wrote down and went out and published on his behalf. And I have 
the copy of his sermons on Ephesians because Pastor Schleyland urged me to buy them about 20 years ago. And I bought them. And what's amazing is that you can listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones go on mljtrust.com, mljtrust.com, and you can download his sermons. And if you download any text in Ephesians, just go to any of the sermons on Ephesians and then come and look on my library and I'll give you the book and you can listen to it on my computer and follow along almost word for word from the book and the recording. Which, as far as a public speaker goes, that's an amazing feat because many public speakers will start one sentence, pause, and before they finish the sentence, start a new sentence again. It's very common. Verbal clutter like, um, uh, um, that's very common. But listen to his sermons and there's very few interruptions. And they follow almost exactly the published works. The man could speak prose. 1940, the attendance drops because of the war and his salary becomes very small, but he does not quit. 1941, he establishes a church prayer meeting at Westminster Chapel, which had been interrupted because of the war. And then in 43, he becomes the full-time pastor as Morgan is gone. And now he begins the pattern of preaching. In 1943, he preaches a sermon to edify believers in the morning and an evangelistic sermon in the evening. And he will keep that practice for the next 25 years. Also in... 1943, he began the practice of preaching verse by verse through books. At least according to this account, the first time he began preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, was 1943. And for the next 25 years, he's going to preach verse by verse through different books of the Bible. I'll give you a list and a little bit of the books that he preached through. But for an example, he preached for eight years from the book of Ephesians, verse by verse. Thirteen years through the book of Romans, and he only made it to chapter 14. On June 18th, 1944, the church is attacked, and he prays through the attack. In 1946... He's 46 years old, and revival strikes the church. People are converted in great numbers just after the war ends. Three years later, 1949, he suffers from depression for three months. And having come out of that, he begins preaching a series of sermons on spiritual depression. This is... The Doctor's most famous topical series. He preached a number of series topically about war and peace and different topics, Bible doctrines, the Holy Spirit. But this series on spiritual depression is also a book. I think all of his sermons have been published now. And spiritual depression is a very helpful book. I would highly recommend anyone who struggles with depression or discouragement to read that book. Amy and I read it together driving out to Valdesia and Elam in 2015 and 2016. And it was a helpful book for us. 1949, he begins the Puritan Conference, which will go on for 20 years until he finally has to stop it 
because he has to separate from those in the conference over false doctrine. 1954, Martin Lloyd-Jones is the only well-known minister in London who refuses to support Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a famous American evangelist who preached all across America. And for his first 30-some years, he preached a message that was very much in agreement with the fundamentals of the faith. However, a turning point came in his life in his 30s when he was sponsored by churches that were liberal. So now fundamentalist churches and liberal churches could come to his, to his crusades and even support. That is, up on the platform while he's preaching in the chairs behind him, there could be a few fundamentalist pastors, a few liberals, a few fundamentalists, a few liberals, a few Bible believers and a few unbelievers sitting on the platform behind Billy Graham as he preached. Lloyd-Jones says, I will not support you until you change two things, Billy Graham. You've got to stop accepting the support of the religion called liberalism. And number two, you have to stop, stop giving altar calls. Because Lloyd-Jones now understood what Charles Finney had done and how dangerous that was. 1954, he's greatly attacked because he will not support the Billy Graham Crusades. 1957, let's have some, some music playing. The Banner of Truth Trust is founded. <laughs> he was not the only founder, but he was vital in helping the Banner of Truth begin. 1858, he travels to preach in South Africa. 1965, he buys his first home. 65 years old and three years before he retires. And then in 1966, he gives a message on evangelical unity at the Evangelical Alliance. This is an alliance where many different denominations get together. And Martin Lloyd-Jones preaches like a fundamentalist. That is, he preaches with the doctrine of a fundamentalist. Though he did not take that title for himself. But he preached the doctrine of a fundamentalist, and he said in his book, in his sermon, Evangelical Unity, and I have that book as well. There are three sermons in that little book, and one of them is called Evangelical Unity. And in that sermon, which I've read, he calls for a clear distinction between those who do not believe the gospel, but call themselves Christian, and those who do believe the gospel and call themselves Christian. And so he said, you must leave the church of England. John Stott was a famous pastor who was in the Church of England at that time. John Stott held to the gospel. John Stott held to all the fundamentals, but John Stott was not willing to leave the Anglican Church. And so when Lloyd Jones, who's probably the most famous preacher in London, preaches, he sits down and John Stott comes right up after him and says, in, in summary, that was wrong. So imagine hearing that at a conference with a few thousand pastors there. And the most famous pastor says, let's be biblical and leave the false churches. And then the next most famous pastor stands up and says, I would say thank you, but what he said was wrong. And so a big fight, uh, a division came between those two. But Lloyd-Jones was right. Lloyd-Jones understood biblical Christian militancy over the truth. 1968, February 25th. He preaches his last Sunday as the pastor at the Westminster Chapel. 
And two months later, on April 14th, he begins his sermons in America at Westminster Seminary on preaching and preachers, which, of course, have been published as a book. And you can listen to all those lectures online. In fact, in two weeks' time, our night class, theology class, will be on preaching. And Paul will be teaching the first hour, or roughly so, on methods for preparing the sermon. And I will be delivering the second hour on how to deliver the truth. And Lloyd-Jones' book, Preaching and Preachers, was very helpful for me in, the, in preparing those notes. 1970, he ends the Puritan Conference because J.I. Packer would not hold to vital truths of the gospel and others, and he was not able to continue in fellowship after 21 years of the Puritan Conference and promoting those wonderful authors. 1970, R.T. Kendall, this is not in your notes, R.T. Kendall becomes the pastor at Westminster Chapel. Notice this, Lloyd-Jones leaves the chapel in 1968. Two years later, they call R.T. Kendall. And this is a very important lesson in church history. R.T. Kendall was not the kind of man that Lloyd-Jones was. He was not as firm and solid in Bible doctrine. R.T. Kendall held loosely to the doctrine. And so, what has happened to the Westminster Chapel since 1970? This is now 50 years later. About three years ago, I went on the Westminster Chapel website for their church. And they had the beautiful church building that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached in. And they were advertising a building program and asking for funds to be given. You could give right there on the website with check or, uh, or with, uh, with your credit card. And they had a video promoting this. And in the video, you could see that they were going to destroy all of the woodwork and get rid of the columns and make it look kind of like a shopping mall. And even have a little cafe where you could buy some coffee and listen to the sermon. And the video was titled on their website, Beautiful Destruction. His sermons are not played on that website. That is, Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons are not on that website. That's a striking contrast with just up the road from the Westminster Chapel, the... Um, Metropolitan Tabernacle. When Spurgeon was preaching there, when he left, the church struggled and fell and declined consistently for the next 60 years until Peter Masters, a man with at least the same grit and power and zeal and, and dependence on the Holy Spirit, came into Spurgeon's shoes. And when I spoke to the secretary at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Again, in 2018, the same time that I was doing research for the Westminster Chapel, they said their membership is 800, their attendance is 1,000. That is, Spurgeon's church now has 800 in attendance, 1,000, I'm sorry, 800 members, 1,000 in attendance, and they said they're preaching as best they can the way and the doctrine that Spurgeon did in the past. On their website, they had 15 or 20 missionaries that they are supporting a third, a half, or entirely. There are two pastors for a church of 800 or 1,000. They still don't use musical instruments, except I wasn't clear. I asked, and they didn't quite answer. They said, we don't use instruments. And then when I asked and pressed, they might use the piano. 
That's Persian. And the reason I share that detail is they, they weren't interested in attracting people based on secondary or ephemeral or worldly attractions. John Calvin didn't even want music in the church because he said people will come to the church just to hear music. And that's a great example of a church that had dwindled down to 50 and grew back at least to some of its previous glory by preaching alone. Well, let me give you some lessons from Martin Lloyd-Jones. On your paper, there are eight. I've got uh, are seven. I've got eight on my page. I had to cut one from yours, and I thought the time, but we'll see what happens here. Number one, we must constantly preach the bad news before we can do any spiritual good. When asked if Martin Lloyd-Jones was going to have a crusade, are you going to have a crusade and invite in a special speaker for a week to see people converted? Lloyd-Jones says, I have one of those every week. He wrote, the great difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that the Christian speaks with humility. That's the great difference. Lloyd-Jones saw it exactly right. The real difference between Christianity and, and false religion is the doctrine of humility. That's why I said previously in the last lecture on fundamentalism and liberalism, with all the things that liberalism denied, I said it's possible that denying the sinfulness of man is the worst because if you admit the, humility, the, the sinfulness of man, your heart will be much more open to reading the Bible. If you say, well, the Bible's accurate, but you're not humble, you probably won't read very much of the Bible. Lloyd-Jones said, it is made perfectly clear in the pages of the New Testament that no man can be saved until at some time or other he has felt desperate about himself. We need to take that into our hearts because all through our churches we have people who are very nice, but have they ever felt desperate about themselves? They haven't, and they're lost. And Lloyd-Jones put his finger on it. His sermons commonly emphasized sin and humility. And men felt small when they heard him preach. But they they continued to come and listen because they also saw that God was very big. Lesson number two, absolutely everything in the Bible is true. He said at one point, evolution is the biggest hoax in the world in the past 100 years. He loved doctrine. That's why he preached verse by verse and often word by word because he believed Every word was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he wanted to separate from those in the churches who tried to diminish parts of the Bible. And that's what I would say, for example, about women pastors. The issue of women pastors, I would ask, why is it that you want to hold to that practice when the scriptures are so clear? If you're going to diminish, for example, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, What other parts of the Bible are you going to diminish as well? Lloyd-Jones knew it. He believed in inerrancy. His sermons were logical, rational, and tightly reasoned. Lesson number three. God is most honored and his people are most helped by expositional preaching. He preached constantly. Often in the week he would be speaking on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday, and Friday night. The first year that he was a pastor, he preached in 50 Four different churches. There's 52 weeks of a year. If you're going to preach in 54 different churches, as well as being a pastor, a new pastor in a church, you're going to be preaching constantly in the week. He spent two and a half years going through the Sermon on the Mount. 
He spent eight years on Ephesians, 13 years on 14 chapters of Romans. He placed very little emphasis on programs in the church. He had all the children above three sitting in the service with him. When they found a stage at the Westminster Chapel on which the drama club had been practicing, they asked him, what should we do with this? And his answer was, quote, you can heat the church with it, close quote. He was once asked to preach on television when he was in America. And they said, when you preach on television, though, you'll need to know that in front of the camera, there's a, a, a green light. And as long as that green light is on, you can preach. But when the red light comes on, or when the yellow light comes on, you have to slow down and close. And when the red light is on, you have to stop. And he said, then I won't preach here because I don't follow lights, but the Holy Spirit. They told him he can go on and preach and they'll just cut it for the television audience. He was a man who was constantly preaching, even up until 80 years old, though he retired at 68. He continued to preach for the next 12 years until he was too weak to preach. He believed that preaching must address the mind first. He defined preaching as logic on fire. Lesson number four. I think this is the one that I cut from yours. Prayer is as vital to the Christian as blood is to the body. Is that that in your sheets? His Sunday morning prayers were usually 10 minutes long. He took time to prepare himself for the prayer and said, quote, There is nothing more important than to learn how to get oneself into the frame of mind to pray. There's nothing more important than learning how to put your mind in the place where it can pray. Quote, When a man is speaking to God, he is at his height. It is the highest activity of the human soul. It is, this, it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christians so much as our prayer life. Everything in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Is it any wonder that we don't pray? He warned us that it is far easier to preach well than to pray well. On one Sunday morning, while he was preaching in London... A man wanted to kill himself by jumping off the London Bridge into the Thames River. Suddenly, he decided to get down and said, I'll kill myself in the afternoon. He walked through the streets of London until he heard singing from a church. It was the Westminster Chapel. He walked up the steps just as the singing stopped, and he heard a Welsh voice praying. He was so overpowered by the prayer that he was converted on the spot. And became a church member. In both pastorates, that is in the Welsh church, in the church in Wales, and in the church in London, he sought to get at least one one hour per week when the church was entirely devoted to prayer. That is, not talking about prayer, not taking requests, but actually praying. In May 1931, they began the prayer meeting at 7.15 And finally, he closed the prayer meeting at 10 p.m. That's two hours and 45 minutes after the people have worked 
These people are walking to get to the church. They're tired. They pray and they keep going until finally he closes it at 10 o'clock p.m. And in the book, he records other times where he was not the one praying. The people didn't want to leave. They would continue praying. Lesson number five, we need to set our hopes on God for revival. Lloyd-Jones longed for revival and he saw it several times in his ministry. In 1930, he and other pastors began to gather to think about religion. And so he and the others got together and they decided to pray for revival. He later wrote, quote, should we pray for revival? Yes, go on praying, but do not try to create revival. He's attacking Finney there. Do you realize that? Charles Finney, he's opposing Charles Finney. Pray for it, but do not try to create it. It is only given by Christ himself. The last church to be visited by a true revival is the church trying to make a revival. Close quote. He wanted nothing to do with fake revivals. One newspaper wrote, he has no use for the type of man who is always trying to produce a revival. After about six months as pastor, his wife was the, one of the first converts in his ministry. His wife, who believed that she was converted earlier on, was saved after hearing him preach for six months. And she testified, I had never heard preaching like this. Preaching that had some kind of power I can't describe. And then deacons and elders in the church were converted after his wife was. On one evening, 40 people were baptized in his church in Wales. This is a church that began, when he began to be the pastor there, there were only 40 people. He was the pastor there for 10 years. While preaching there, on one night, he saw 40 people baptized. Lesson number six, seriousness is a Christian virtue because of the great realities with which they deal. His biography, this book has 13 photos and not one of them shows him smiling. Now, I like to smile and I'm sure he did smile. His biography speaks about him smiling and being actually a very humorous man, but never in the pulpit. There are no jokes in his sermons. Although sometimes he would make people laugh, it wasn't because he was looking for or working up a laugh. The people would arrive at the church and wait in silence until the worship began. There was no band, not even a choir. Ian Murray writes, If there were celebrities in his congregation, which there often were, he neither knew nor cared. Once the ambassador from the queen was in his service, he gave him no recognition. And he said this, quote, It is not our service. The people not come, do not come there to see us or please us. They and we are there to worship God and to meet with God. And to God alone we must meet. His life was marked by seriousness. The first thing you have to do in preaching is to demonstrate to the people that what you were going to do was very urgent. Let me give you one final lesson. Truth is more valuable than friendship, recognition, or opportunity. 
as liberalism grew, the Christians in the major denominations decided to talk with unbelievers and even call them Christians. And they assumed, well, the people in these other churches are Christians, and these really are churches. But Lloyd-Jones would not allow for this kind of ecumenism, this kind of blending of the true and the false. And so he lost friends. He even lost his chance to preach in larger places. He lost his influence because he would not endorse Billy Graham, for example, and he would not unite with ecumenical causes. And 50 years later, we have seen that he was right. Lloyd-Jones was right. The Christians who did try to gain more influence at that time lost their spiritual power and eventually lost many doctrines of the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones loved the gospel more than anything else, and he held firmly to truth. May God give us many more Martin Lloyd-Jones today.